This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the New York Yankees official podcast. I already had the confidence, but I knew that now the results are coming, and, and it's just like a comfortability thing to me now. Like, every time I'm out there, I feel like, you know, I'm throwing in my backyard or I'm throwing in Scranton. Like, it, it feels the exact same to me when before it was like the, I would build these moments up and I would go out there and I would almost put too much pressure on myself and, and make it to, you know, you build these moments up and it's like, oh, this is the biggest outing of my life, but really it's like, you know, it's just another outing. And that's kind of how I feel now. I knew that there was going to be adjustments and growing pains, but I also knew that I was very well capable of doing it and being a very um, capable major league starter in the big leagues, like consistently. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the New York Yankees official podcast. I'm John Schwartz. I'm the deputy editor for Yankees Magazine. Joining me across the Zoom line, we have our editor-in-chief, Al Sanasiri. Al, what's going on? Nothing. Good to be on here. Good to be talking to you. Obviously, it's been an interesting couple weeks around the Yankees. We just came through the trade deadline. It was quieter than some people expected, but it is, you know, what it is. And this is now the team... Uh, that the Yankees are going to ride to hopefully the postseason. And one of the key horses that they'll be riding, I guess, if you want to keep the metaphor going, is Clark Schmidt, who stopped by our podcast studio earlier this week to talk about really just turning his season around in a pretty interesting way. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, his journey this year is a really interesting one. You know, this was a, a kind of, you know, a big year for him. And he struggled, you know, a little bit in April and into May. And a lot of guys, you know, it's hard for them to, to pull out of that. He was able to. And if you look at what he's done, particularly over the last, you know, month and a half, it's pretty impressive. And, you know, he's doing what Yankees fans and the organization really wanted, which is becoming a real quality starting pitcher in the major leagues. For sure. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And then we will discuss a feature about Yankees closer Clay Holmes. So before we do anything else, let's get to my chat with Clark Schmidt. Joining us right now on the New York Yankees official podcast, we have Clark Schmidt. Clark, we spoke for a while in April, sitting in the dugout here. I was planning, you know, we were going to do the story then for May, promising first start. Then April was a big struggle. As you look back now, what do you think was the root of the struggles early on here? There was some adjustment period and there was um, a little bit of uh, change coming out of the bullpen, you know, from last year. Uh, you know, I grew up as a starter. I was drafted as a starter, but um, you kind of get in that routine last year as being a reliever and, and kind of changed my pitch package a little bit and um, kind of the way I attacked hitters. And um, so I think there were some growing pains early on in, in getting back used to being back in that starting role and, and trying to face guys three, third, three times through an order and 
Um, you know, you can't just go out there and, and rip your best stuff the whole time. You know, you got to kind of set up hitters and, and be a little bit more unpredictable throughout the throughout the game. And so um, I think that was an adjustment period. And I also think just kind of learning the ebbs and flows of how to be a major league starter in the big leagues was a growing process for me. And you learn a lot of things early on, and I was able to pick up a lot of things. And I think that's kind of why I, I've gone on the run that I've gone on uh, in recent is just because um, you know, you make adjustments throughout and you learn things, things that work for you and, and things that don't work for you. And, and I think I've also kind of started to find my identity as who I am as a pitcher. But I also, you know, I appreciate the, the kind of that failure and being able to learn from it and to figure out what, what hasn't worked and what, what doesn't work for me. And um, so that's, it's been good to kind of have the best of both worlds throughout this year. Obviously, we've joked about this before. People laugh about your confidence. People certainly bring up your confidence. Mm-hmm. Does internally your confidence waver in situations like that or do you rely on some sense that like this is who I am and I'm gonna figure this out Mm -hmm. yeah I think uh honestly no like I was uh, I had that kind of that confidence the whole time that um you know obviously the results weren't there and um but I felt like I was really close and I knew that I, I felt like I was an outing away every time I went out there. And so it was kind of just that mindset of just continuing to chip away, continuing to put the work in in between outings and, and do my preparation and eventually the results are going to come. And I think that mentality is, is what got me through it and, and being able to, to start having success. And, you know, this game is, it's a really tough game and you go through a lot of failures in this game. And so um, I think through my through my failures, that's kind of where my confidence has come from. It's like, you know, I know that, you know, I failed on the world stage and, you know, in the playoffs last year in front of millions of people and, and didn't do my job at all. And you see the other side of that. And it's like, it can't really get much worse than that. So um, for me, it was like, you know, it's just continuing to trust the process, continuing to put the work in and, um, you know, the results are going to come. And I think having the confidence in my stuff and my abilities, it only makes you a better player. It's not going to hurt you. Did you feel, and I know this is oversimplifying things, but was there a turning point? Was Is there something that if you looked, whether May or whatever, where you just said like, okay, I've turned a corner here. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the Toronto outing was like the big, the big outing where it was like, okay, this is kind of like we're riding the ship a little bit. Here's results now. Like we know that we can do it. And then uh, the Texas outing, which I think was maybe like a couple weeks later, I ended up giving like five or six runs up, but I struck out like eight or nine dudes. Like, and so the results like were kind of sporadic, but we felt like we were getting on the right track. I was striking out a lot of guys, but we just weren't keeping runs at bay. We were giving up a lot of slug. Um, and so I was like, okay, that's like the last box I have to check off. I felt like was being able to eliminate the big swing. And, um, obviously the left-handers were crushing me at the time and, uh, kind of just figuring out and navigating a way to where we can face these lefty lineup, heavy lineups. And I think that was the biggest adjustment. And, um, I would say somewhere in between those outings where it was like, all right, this is, you know, this is starting to turn around. And, and then it just kind of went on a roll from there. And then my confidence, and it, like it jumped through the roof because I knew like I already had the confidence, but I knew that um, now the results are coming and, and, and it's just like a comfortability thing to me now. Like every time I'm out there, I feel like, you know, I'm throwing in my backyard or I'm throwing in Scranton. It's like it, it feels the exact same to me. When before it was like the, I would build these moments up and I would go out there and I would almost put too much pressure on myself and, and make it to, to, you know, you build these moments up and it's like, oh, this is the biggest outing of my life. But really, it's like, you know, it's just another outing. So and that's kind of how I feel now. It's like every time I go out there, it's just another outing and then just going out there and trying to do my job. You brought up the lefty stuff. Obviously, the big story in the spring, the big story at the beginning was the cutter you were bringing in. That was going to be a big part of how you were going to neutralize lefties. Obviously, 
it was a struggle at the beginning and you know because of that largely but i mean your number still i think it's a 200 difference in ops lefty versus righty whatever how do you feel that you are progressing in balancing out that platoon split and what has been the difference from then to now yeah i feel like you know it's completely different now you know before it was you would see all the lefties in the lineup and you'd be like oh gosh i gotta face this seven lefties or whatever it is and now it's kind of like you know i faced the orioles i think four times this year and (laughs) two or three of those times they had seven lefties in there every time cleveland had a bunch of so it's like you know now it's like i kind of i don't like look forward to it it's not like i'm like oh let's get more lefties in there but it's like when i see lefties in there i'm not you know it's um, it's something that I kind of welcome. And it's like, you know, at first I felt like it was a challenge, but now it's like, it's a way for me to kind of not be as predictable too, because I get a face, you know, when you're facing the other side, you kind of, your pitch package changes a little bit. So I feel very comfortable with it. And, and I think how how I've changed that is, is kind of the areas I'm getting to and, and the way I get there. Um, you know, before I, I was throwing a lot of pitches like down and into lefties, which is a, a slugging pitch typically to lefties. And now it's kind of avoiding the damage areas. And, and I've, I've done a really good job of kind of, of doing that. And so I think that's the number one thing. And it's also, we've gotten a little bit more swing and miss over there to the lefties. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, to, to answer your question, yes, I do feel a lot comfortable when I'm out there facing lefties. And I do think we kind of neutralize that problem. Obviously, you know, certain lefties are more dangerous than others, but when you're a right-handed starter in, in the big leagues, it's it's crazy how many lefties you end up facing because, you know, especially in, in today's game with with no shift, a lot, of, a lot of these lineups just platoon a lot of lefties if you're a righty. So, of course, your, your numbers could be skewed a little bit, but to being able to, to have that comfortable comfortability out there and and the addition of the cutter has really been able to and and kind of knowing where I could can throw it and can't throw it before it was like you know I, I had this new pitch and I didn't really know how to utilize it because it was like a new pitch package and that that was kind of like the adjustment period the whole first month was like how do I use this pitch and when do I use it and so I think we've we've done a pretty good job of being able to utilize utilizing it recently obviously as you went from spring training into the season you were excited about you know, and I, and I mean, I should point out, it was because of injuries at the beginning. It, certainly, you weren't slated to start the second game of the season when camp started, but I know you were excited to be starting in there as a starter. Um, and I'm not trying to be difficult when I say that. Was it harder than you expected? Were there things that, you know, for all the much you wanted, for all you want to start a full season as a starter at the big leagues, was it more challenging than you expected? Obviously, you know it's going to be challenging. It's not like going to be a walk in the park. Like, you know, it's it's the major league baseball and it's the best of the best. For These guys are pretty good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's you know, it's as elite as it can get. Um, so you knew it wasn't going to be a walk in the park, and I knew that there was going to be adjustments and growing pains. But I also knew that I was very well capable of doing it and being a very um, uh, capable major league starter in the big leagues, like consistently. It wasn't like there wasn't a fear of mine of like, oh, like I can't do this or I can do this. It it was just one of those things where it was like, we're going to go out there and we're going to learn as we go and we're going to adapt and continue to pick up things and, and do things that I need to do to to, to have success and, and put my team in a chance to win. And so um, at first, obviously, that was very hard for me. Like I couldn't, you know, there was just a lot of things that you learn throughout it and um, you learn what works and what doesn't work. And now it's to the point where it's like every time I go out there, the guys are looking forward to me getting the ball. And um, that's a good feeling to know that my teammates want me to be out there and, and the the staff wants me to be out there. And, and um, you know, every time I'm out there, it's like, you know, we have a chance to win this ball game when before in the first month, it wasn't really that that wasn't the, the case. So that's that's my, my ultimate goal. And it should be any 
starter's ultimate goal is just to give your team a chance to win every time you go out there. So uh, it's definitely a comforting feeling to know that now. You talk about the pitch mix. I'm going to read this so I get it right. Through your start against Baltimore um, at the end of July, you were a 30% sweeper, 26% cutter, 24% sinker, 18% curveball, about 1% changeup. Mm-hmm. When we were talking in April, if I would have asked you to chart out your what you thought your pitch mix would be, should be, let's say, how close do you think you would have said to what we're seeing now, two thirds of the way through the season? I would say pretty close. I think it's it's tough to tough to be able to gauge that because like you know sometimes you you know for me like if I face a righty heavy lineup, my pitch package is going to be different than when I face a, sure. a lefty heavy lineup. So um, it really kind of boils down to who you're facing a little bit. You know, like for me, I faced a ton of lefties of of recent and then this year. So um, I think the cutter usage is going to creep up. This, the the curveball usage is going to creep up. Um, and the sweeper usage is kind of like hovered around where, where I thought it would be. And early on in the season, I think we weren't using our fastballs enough, like the two versions of the fastball, the cutter and the sinker, you know, we had to establish my, my fastball. And I think early on, we weren't doing that. Um, and, and that was like the biggest change we made. We were like, all right, even if it's not an elite pitch per se on the, the metrics and the numbers, you know, that your breaking balls are elite, but they don't become elite if the hitter knows that it's coming every time. So, um, I think when, when we made that adjustment, we were like, all right, we have to establish a fastball. that's going to make your, your breaking balls play up. And I think that that's really helped me. And it's obviously such a hard thing. And it's one of my favorite things to talk to pitchers about because there's this concept of the right pitch. So two things here. Number one, I don't remember who told me this back in the day, but some of the best advice that I've gotten about understanding pitching, the right pitch is the pitch that the pitcher has the most conviction in at that moment. He said, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a simple thing, but mm-hmm. also like the right pitch, if the hitter is expecting the right pitch, it's no longer the right pitch. The right pitch, if you throw it wrong, it's not the right pitch. How much do you lean on knowing that you can basically have a balanced arsenal of kind of four pitches there that, you know, there's not a right pitch in the moment. There's not an obvious pitch that Clark's going to throw me. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's the biggest thing is like, um, there, there has to be a sense of un, unpredictability there because, you know, when you're, when you're falling into patterns, especially to good teams, like, um, and good lineups, you, you, you they, they're able to pick apart the, your, your patterns. And so, when I kind of strayed away from like, all right, we, we're just going to throw a sweeper and curveball, uh, and we're going to like, now we're just basically spacing out all of the usages throughout all those four pitches pretty evenly. I think it m- makes them all play up. And, and like you said, like there isn't a perfect pitch, like, you know, sometimes I'll, you know, you give up a homer or something and you, you, you kill yourself like that night. You're like, why did I throw that pitch? But then it's really like, you know, you could, you could do that with every, every AB, you know, it's like, you know, if he, if he didn't strike out right there, he could have hit a homer on that same exact pitch. So it's like, you know, you go back and forth on, on the pitches, but really it just boils down to having the conviction in the pitch that you're pick, pick, picking, the catcher is picking that, that also goes down to your preparation with, with the game planning and stuff like that. Like, um, the stuff that we do behind the scenes with our analytics and and um, our catchers and being able to to formulate a game plan and on what what we're, what we're going to kind of navigate through that night is a big deal and so I think we're also on the same like that's a, another thing is like we've been on the same page um, of recent like w- what we want to do how we want to attack each hitter and so uh, that kind of stuff really helps when you're on the same page. I always kind of make fun of my brother for this. My brother's a guy who he'll be watching a game and you know bad result whatever what's this guy doing and it's just like hey man you know the other guy's trying to yeah. <laughs> that guy's pretty good also and, and look i mean i'm not trying to make excuse i'm not yeah. obviously this is a results-based business you right. want to but it's just like there's sometimes that it's like hey that was a pretty good pitch yeah and yeah the other guy's pretty good yeah and, uh, and honestly like especially in this division that that conversation comes up more than than not like 
me and Garrett were talking about that last night. Like, just you know, when you're facing Tampa and the all the the Orioles and all these teams, like you know, they have elite hitters. So, um, and and they're good at hitting mistakes. You, uh, it's funny watching you pitch. I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of people. I mean, you're kind of frantic on the mound. Mm-hmm. There are a lot, of, a lot of bounce and stuff. Like, wh- what is that? Where is mm-hmm. that from? Yeah, I've always been kind of like uh, energetic and quirky out there. I think I grew up watching like Jake Peavy and uh, Tim Hudson and like a lot of guys, uh, a lot of fiery guys who 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 are very, you know, I kind of pitch off competitiveness first you know when I'm out there I'm just out there trying to compete overall and uh I kind of have like like to play with like a chip on my shoulder and be a little fiery when I'm out there and it's just kind of always been like that even in high school I was like that I was all you know I I would always be kind of like not chippy but you know I'm just you know I'm I'm ready for action like I'm out there and and I'm trying to kind of be a little chaotic and, and and come at you and and be a little relentless and kind of a killer mentality and so I was like that in college and, and it's kind of carried on and um, sometimes I'm a little quirkier than others and then there's some games where I'm you, you have to have your emotions in check but for the most part I'm out there competing and, try, and trying to you know have that little killer instinct in me. It just seems like it would be so hard to repeat your delivery when you're like coming from a running start. I mean yeah. <laughs> how did you learn how to like yeah do both of those uh, things? Well, yeah, it's funny like last year I didn't have that mechanics you know I, I kind of um, it was one of those things where like, you know, Jamison Tyone had it last year where he kind of like does that gather in his windup. And, and I felt like I should, you know, to an extent incorporate it just to, because I would always pull off my pitches, like open up a little early and, uh, to, to the first base side. And I would always cast and, and miss arm side sometimes on my pitches. So like doing that kind of little stutter step and, and gathering over the rubber keeps me, my, my weight over the rubber and my body over the rubber to where I'm not, uh, pulling off my pitches and, um, and it also keeps me athletic. I've always been like an athletic dude and, and being able to be in tempo and stuff like that. You know, I played a bunch of different sports growing up. And so I think, um, you know, being like fluid and kind of just da- like almost like a dance out there, like where you're just kind of going through it and, and, um, you're fluid the whole time. Going back to that confidence for one second and I'll let you go soon. I promise. Um, everyone, like we said, we talk about the confidence you have. Now, that doesn't just have to be a conversation about a guy in a clubhouse. I mean, confidence can be a weapon, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's something that you can use on the mound as a skill, much the same way you might use a, a cutter in some mm-hmm. ways, right? Right. Yeah, 100%. And, um, you know, I, we were actually watching – me and Judgey were sitting down watching the game the other night, and we were just like uh, – in we were in the dugout just like talking about – um, the different, like you can see when, when someone's confident and like the way they carry themselves and it's, it goes hand in hand with conviction. Like you can watch a pitcher and if they have the confidence in in their stuff, whether they're doing good or bad, like you can just kind of see, um, the difference between a confident person and a non-confident person. And it shouldn't go like this, but unfortunately it kind of goes hand in hand with results where, you know, the guy who's pitching really good or the guy who's hitting really good is, is normally the most confident guy, but the guy who is the best player, I would say, uh, you could argue is, is the guy who's confident through the ups and the downs. And, um, so for me, it's like just always being the same. Like I don't get too high. I don't get too low. I'm always like confident when I'm out there. Cause um, I know if I have the confidence on my side and in conviction in what I'm doing, um, and confidence in my preparation, then, uh, I'm going to get the best out of myself rather than having doubts about, you know, what I'm doing, why I'm, why I'm doing this, what pitch I'm pick, picking. Um, so I think, um, just having that confidence to, to go out there and get the job done it, 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 more times than not, you're going to have success. And then the last thing for you here. So when I look at your trajectory here, the one thing I would say 
is next, maybe, if you want to say it. You haven't gotten to 100 pitches yet. You haven't, you know, gotten an out yet in the seventh inning, in a sense. As you look to your personal progression, a strength of this team obviously being such a strong bullpen, how much do you want to, you know, extend that or, or shorten the bridge, maybe, to, mm-hmm. to, to, the, to the back of the bullpen? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. Like, uh, you know, I've had, there's there's been a lot of outings where I've been pulled in, like, the six yeah. with, like, 50, 60-something pitches or or vice versa. Like, you, you kind of grind and you're in the early parts of the game. So I think that's definitely, like, the next step of my uh, starter you know, kind of learning that how to navigate the back end of the game. But it also kind of gets catered towards me a little bit because when you're kind of that middle to the back end of the rotation arm, the bullpen's obviously going to get utilized towards, you know, earlier than not. Uh, it's not going to be the same when Garrett's out there. Um, so, and we also have a really, really good bullpen. So it's like you're kind of doing yourself a disservice if you're not using it. So to be able to get into the seventh and 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 get outs in the seventh here, it's like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be clean in the sixth and the seventh if you want to be able to go out there. So um, for me, obviously, it's it's kind of the next step, but it's also something I'm not putting pressure on because I know our bullpen's so good. So for me, it's just continuing to to you know, to learn and, and to obviously I, when I go out there, my plan, my mentality when I go out there is I'm, I'm going to go as deep as I can. Like you're not taking me out of this game. you got to pull me out of this game. But then it's like, you know, situations kind of, you know, they arise and it's like, well, we have a really good guys down there. So don't feel like, you know, if you leave a runner on or runner out there, like you're in jeopardy of that run and getting cashed in. But, you know, I trust the guys that come in behind me and um, obviously Booney and, and the rest of the guys, they trust the guys too. They like to lean on that, that strength of ours. And so, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure I know it will come, so I'm not pressuring it, but as of right now, it's just, you know, continuing to go out there and, and I'm going to try to stay out there until they, until they kick me off the mound. Clark Schmidt, always a joy. Thanks so much, man. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hi, this is Garrett Cole. You're listening to the New York Yankees official podcast. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, this is Carlos Rodon. You're listening to the New York Yankees official podcast. 
welcome back to the New York Yankees official podcast, Al. I, I, I think that this is a interesting little story we had here because to give some background on this, I first started working on a Clark Schmidt piece of which this interview now is going to be a big part of back in April when he was the Yankees game two starter because Carlos Rodon obviously was hurt. At the time, there were very high hopes, obviously. Then he really, really struggled through April and even some of May. But man, if you look at what he's done recently, you could see why there was so much optimism about him. And it's fun to watch a guy just turn it around, you know, one start at a time. Yeah, I just think, you know, at a a crucial time, you know, in the season, as we just discussed, you know, the team didn't go out and make a big splash. They're riding, you know, the guys that they have here, like you said, to hopefully get to October, um, he's stepping up and he's stepping up at the right time. And I, I don't really um, imagine that that's going to change. He's blossoming. He's coming into his own. He's getting more comfortable. Um, I know he's worked a lot with, you know, some of the other starting pitchers. Um, it's nice to see it coming together. And when you look at pitchers, you know, almost throughout history or recent history, it takes a couple of years, but the good ones figure it out and, you know, figure out how to use that talent to get guys out on a, consistent basis and you know the Yankees need guys who will give them a chance to win games right now more than anything and he's doing that you know almost almost every time out I think that's such a huge point right now because the the reality is you know whether fans agree or disagree with how the front office handled the trade deadline that's in the past now (laughs) you know we don't even have what we used to have which was the you know non-waiver or the, the waiver trade deadline um it's over. This is the roster. This is the roster the Yankees are riding here. Obviously, there are people down you know, in AAA who maybe will be a part of the next two months, but who knows? But it doesn't matter. The fact is, this is the team. And for all the you know, frustration, for all the difficult vibes some nights, if you will, the Yankees are like a six-game winning streak away from you know, being exactly where they want to be. I'm not trying to sound too rosy. Who knows? It it could also, the the other reality is the Yankees are in last place right now. I mean, you can't really, you know, say one without the other. So everything, to quote Aaron Boone, everything is in front of them. But the point is, everybody on this team has to step up. Everybody on this team has to play better. And to watch Clark Schmidt being able to do what he's doing, you know, when honestly, and and I'm not trying to, uh, you heard we talked about this. I mean, he just wasn't a major league pitcher in those first two months. I mean, he he, it just it, it nothing was working right. To see a guy who was so confident, even as he was struggling, who knew what he could do, knew who he was, to see him doing it, you know, look, it's going to take a lot more than just Clark Schmidt to get this team where it needs to be, but it will take players doing what Clark Schmidt's doing. No question about it. I mean, I think the the key thing you said there is, you know, it's all in front of them. Um, And I know that was what what Aaron, you know, Boone had said, I think it was uh, yesterday. (laughs) I think Uh, he said it every day, basically, for the last. uh... Maybe every day for the last, yeah, for the last month or so. But, but yeah, you know, there's no doubt that the potential is there. The talent is there. You look at some teams and they're scratching at the surface of, you know, getting in or whatever, and they don't really have that talent or that ability. The talent is certainly there, and you need guys like Clark Schmidt, in addition to the Aaron Judges and Giancarlo Stantons and the superstar-type players to win those games or to put those guys like Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton and DJ LeMahieu and and all those guys into a position to win. He's doing that. If he's not doing it every, 
you know, every time out, he's doing it four out of five times. And you turn around one or two other pitchers and that translates into winning streaks or, you know, streaks of seven out of 10 wins or, you know, things like that. And you don't need to recreate the wheel here. They just need, like you said, to get on a, on a roll. It doesn't even need to be 20 out of 20, just a good solid streak. I've seen this in my 20 years so many times where uh, our teams were, you know, on the outside looking in and, you know, put it into high gear and August was good and September was good. It wasn't incredible, but it was good and it was good enough and it was better than July. It was better than June, uh, certainly better than those first couple months. And you get in and once you get in, you know, I mean, I know that seems like a million years from now, but once you get in, you never know. Like anything can happen. You have Garrett Cole at the top of the rotation, you know, and you're getting, you know, Nestor Cortez back, who obviously, you know, when he's been healthy, has been so good. Even looking at a guy like Carlos Rodon, who, you know, is, is, is struggling now coming out of really what for him is like spring training. But boy, if he does what he did in the last two years prior to this, I mean, that's that's a way to win series. So you just got to get in and, you know, uh, guys like Clark Schmidt are, are going to play a, a pivotal role in making that hopefully a reality down the stretch here. The reality is if the Yankees get into the postseason, if they get back on track, it'll obviously mean that the offense has kicked it into the gear it should be in. But you got to feel pretty good. If your offense is working, if your starting pitching is doing what your starters should be doing, the Yankees clearly know they can rely on just a remarkable, remarkable bullpen. And and obviously the huge piece of that is Clay Holmes. We have a big feature on Clay Holmes by Bob Clappish. It's called Lethal Weapon 2. The two, of course, being the just goofy and hilarious and unbelievable two-seam fastball that, I mean, it's a magic trick. That's all there is to say about it. And I, I just don't know how anyone ever hits that pitch. Yeah, and he proved that you know, last year en route to, you know, Dodger Stadium and pitching in the all-star game. Um, when that pitch is working, it's, it, you're right, it does look like a magic trick, but it's also a magic trick that's coming at you at like 100 miles an hour. So besides the movement, you know, the the, the lethal combination to to kind of uh, parody the, the headline of speed and and movement is, is amazing. I always find really every story that we've done on him to be, you know, both inspiring and, and really interesting because he found that pitch. He, you know, similar to, to what Mariano Rivera did with his cutter, he found the pitch. Um, it didn't come right away, but when it did and he worked on it, it became something that, that clearly elevated his career and has helped the Yankees out tremendously. And it's early August, you know, you look ahead and, you know, getting those those last outs become harder and more, you know, more uh, pivotal and games are generally closer down the stretch and certainly in the postseason. And really good to have somebody like that who's able to do the things that he's that he's done and is doing right now. It's super, super important. In a sense, it's almost difficult with Yankees history because the reality is it sets you up for failure in a sense it sets you up to be unfair you want to talk about a great yankees closer well how about this let's let's compare you to mariana rivera the greatest reliever in history it reminds me of we have a hot shot young shortstop coming up this year and 
you know, it's awesome watching Anthony Volpe, but it's not fair to him to compare him to Derek Jeter when he's, you know, 21, 22 years old. I mean, it just, all these things, it, it makes it difficult because your brain as a Yankees fan, as a Yankees employee, as a Yankees magazine writer goes to these comparisons that, you know, they're ludicrous in some ways. But the reality, though, is when you look at Clay Holmes is not Mariano Rivera. Let's be very clear about that. Clay Holmes is not on a Hall of Fame trajectory right now. Who knows what happens in the future? But, like, you know, it's ludicrous to compare them on that level. But Clay Holmes is a guy who literally every hitter knows what's coming every single time that they step in there against him and they can't hit it. I mean, they know. They, he's not fooling them. He's not, he's not, you know, breaking out a knuckleball here. He's throwing the same pitch he always throws. But they can't do anything with it. And you're crazy if your brain doesn't go to Mariana Rivera when you're watching that. Yeah, it's fun, John. I think it's it's fun to to make the comparison, but you have to be realistic. Um, he's doing some things that Mariana Rivera did, and I think that's fair. He's throwing a pitch that, like you said, guys know uh, that it's coming, and they're still not able to hit it. And there's not a lot of players or, or not a lot of pitchers that have had that that unique, you know, skill set or ability. Um, you know, most of the time, if players know that, you know, what pitch is coming, they are able to hit it. I mean, that's generally cheating or regarded as cheating. Uh, it's almost like, you know, Mariano Vera was that good. God-given ability almost made it as if he was cheating. And, and I mean that in a most, most, most respectful way possible. That's just how good he was. Um, and right now, in a, in a moment in time, uh, or a time capsule, if you will, you know, Clay Holmes is doing a lot of that. I think you have to keep it in check. Obviously, he's got to do it at a long, long, long time to compare him on terms of, uh, you know, overall body of work, which is the most important thing in any, you know, industry or any, anything anyone does. Um, but right now, he's he's exhibiting some of that same stuff. And and it's fun and it's special. Um, hopefully Anthony Volpe gets to that point too, where he's doing some of the things that, you know, that Derek Jeter did. I, I think the other thing that's really interesting is, you know, we made so many comparisons last year naturally from a statistical standpoint and just, you know, writing about what they meant to the game and what they were able to do between Aaron Judge and, you know, what Roger Maris did during a, a moment in time, you know, a short period of time in the early 60s. And then, of course, what Babe Ruth did over, like, almost 15 years. Um, you know, Aaron Judge did something, and in fact, more than those guys did. Um, and that was amazing and special and unique. Um, I think why that kind of happened a little bit more naturally, besides the fact that, you know, Aaron Judge has proven himself to be a generational type of talent and, and, and is on a Hall of Fame trajectory. But also, it was a little more natural because – we were comparing him to players that people like you and I had never really seen, you know, because it was so long ago. It's a little weirder, if you will, to compare somebody with a guy like Derek Jeter or a guy like Marion Rivera, who was so amazing, so generational, you know, first ballot Hall of Famers. One was unanimous. The other one was almost unanimous, um, you know, voted in. And it feels like yesterday, you know, that we were watching those guys. So it's, you know, it's a little strange, I think, um, to feel like you're seeing something like that again. Again, noting that it's it's in a short window of time so far. And look, I mean, the reality is I think that part of the legacy 
of Mariano Rivera is because we watched him succeed so much because we watched him get elected to the Hall of Fame unanimously, the only player ever. I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully here, lest I be accused of denigrating Mariano Rivera somehow. But you get the impression that he never failed. You get the impression that he was perfect. Um, obviously, on balance, Mariano Rivera was the most successful relief pitcher in history. But much like, look, I mean, we're not going to pretend that right out of the All-Star break, Clay Holmes didn't give up a grand slam that was crushing you know i mean these things happen but also that happened to mariana rivera too it's just when you look at just this guy's body of work now in the last year and a half essentially arguably he should have been an all-star again this year the last two years he's made it to the all-star break without giving up a home run which i mean is just so important for your closer i mean who obviously you need him to just limit damage in in that regard you you can just see that he has he he just has this way of just messing with these hitters so much so effectively because again it's not that he's messing he's throwing this year sixty six percent two seamers last year was eighty um you know again they know it's coming they just can't do anything with it and I think that it's natural when you see a guy have a good run for a little bit to wait for the other shoe to drop in a sense. And, and and obviously in the second half last year, Holmes wasn't as incredible as he had been in the first half. And I think it might've been fair for people to wonder like, okay, that was fun. The Clay Holmes thing was fun to see how impactful he has been this year again, to see the way that he responded and, and again, just became so impossible to hit. Like you, you, Again, I mean, I don't want to go too far here. I don't want to be ridiculous, but you do wonder what the ceiling is for this guy, and you do wonder, you know, what the future holds for him because right now, whatever it is, it's certainly working. It's nice. It's nice right now. You know, um, you make a great point. You know, we certainly put guys like Derek Jeter uh, or Mariano Rivera, I mean, probably the two greatest players I ever saw, you know, in person and, and got to be around and got to cover for long periods of time. Um, you know, you, you certainly do put them on a pedestal. And sometimes as time goes by, you your mind almost trips you up a little bit and makes you feel like Mariano Rivera never gave up a run, you know, or Derek Jeter never, you know, made an out. Um, you know, he didn't bat a thousand in any year last I checked. Um, that would have been cool, but, you know, that didn't happen. And Mariano Rivera did have some blown saves. Again, it's the overall body of work for both of those guys that was remarkable. I, you know, I often said about Mariano Rivera, he dominated the competition more so than any other player I had seen in any sport. Um, you know, because he was, you know, go months and months and months at a time without ever getting beat. And sometimes without even getting almost beat, you know, never giving up two singles or anything like that. That's where the comparison rings true to Clay Holmes. He's gone months and months at a time without ever getting beat, without ever giving up a home run. And that's really what it comes down to, dominating your opponent in such a crazy, ridiculous way. And no hitter can really do that, you know, because even the greatest hitters are going to fail, you know, seven times out of ten or six and a half times, if you will, or whatever. Relief pitcher can do that. A starting pitcher can do that. Mariano Rivera sure as heck did that 
where no one beat him, no one came close to beating him, literally for months at a time. But by the way, Clay Holmes has done the same thing. Now, again, backtracking a little bit, it's not been decades yet. It's been a year and a half. But hey, we could be sitting here, you know, doing this podcast, um, you know, in 2024, and we could be saying the same thing. If we're, we're saying the same thing then, you know, that's another year. Now it's two and a half years we're talking about or whatever. And that starts to build up and that body of work starts to really expand and become even more significant and more special. And he's got it going on. He's not, you know, he doesn't have father time looking, you know, looking at him too closely yet. Um, I think he's going to stay at this level. I'm not going to say he's going to get better because you can't really do that, but I think he's going to stay at this level for a bit and um, fun ride to be on for, for you and I, for sure. Sure is. Again, the story is called Lethal Weapon 2. It most assuredly is that kind of weapon. Al, it's been good talking to you. You know, look, we're going to do this again in two weeks, and we we know what the team is going to look like. We know who's on the team now. We haven't been able to say that for a little bit, but we'll see. Again, those two weeks can be amazing. Those two weeks can be more of the same. We don't know until we go through it, but the reality, like we said, there are two months of baseball left, two months of time for the Yankees to work their way into that playoff spot. And, you know, not to be a broken record here, not to be, you know, too, too rosy if you want to, but if they are able to go on a run like that, it's easy to see them sustaining it. This is a really talented team. This is These are players with very good baseball reference pages. You, you just you need to see that run start, but whatever it is, Al, in the meantime, always good talking to you, always good uh, working with you, and uh, look forward to hopefully watching some winning baseball with you in these next few weeks. I feel the same way. Thank you. Hi, this is Kyle Higashioka. Thank you for listening to the New York Yankees official podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe at yankees.com slash podcast or at the podcast app of your choice and tell your friends. The New York Yankees official podcast is a production of the Yankees Magazine Podcast Network. It's produced by me, John Schwartz, with assistance from the entire team at Yankees Magazine, as well as incredible support from the New York Yankees Media Relations Department, in particular Jason Zillow, Michael Margolis, and Caitlin Brennan. Thanks also to our awesome social media team, Brian Callahan, Julia Shore, and Alex King. If you're not subscribed, what are you waiting for? We're available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at yankees.com slash podcasts. Leave us a review, leave us a rating, you can even send us your thoughts over email, podcasts at yankees.com. For more information about the stories we discussed today, visit yankees.com slash magazine, where you can read all of our long-form content. If you'd like to subscribe to Yankees Magazine or purchase individual copies of the magazine, yearbook, media guide, or anything else, please visit yankees.com slash publications or call us at 800-GO-YANKS. Of course, you can also stay up to date on everything happening here at the stadium by following us on Twitter, at Yanks Magazine, or by liking us on Facebook at Yankees Magazine. That's it. See you next time, and go Yanks!